0: Police put out a very blurry picture of an SUV and say they have
1: information that a man shoved her into that SUV and took off. Somehow he's able to control her, get her into the car, and news reports claim that the SUV remained there for four minutes before taking off.
2: When he puts you in a place where he has more control and privacy, the risk to your life is increased dramatically. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer-producer of CBS's Criminal Minds and still with Criminal Minds in season 16 on Paramount Plus. And with me today is...
0: Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor and executive producer and writer of Audible's Midwest Monster. Jim, I'm so excited we have a returning guest, one who hasn't been on in gosh, a long time. I want to say maybe a year, but I've managed to convince her to come back on in really? spite of the fact that the two of you worked <laughs> together in the past. And yes. why don't
1: you introduce yourself, Kathy? Sure. My name is Kathleen Canning-Mello. I'm a retired FBI agent. Uh, uh, spent 31 years in the Bureau and um, 10 of that I spent in the BAU, working with Jim Clemente. So it's always so fun to get back together with you. See, And Jim to talk about cases. So she
2: meant more about me. (laughs) I did.
1: And, you know, speaking
0: of FBI, I just want to tell you guys really quickly. I was so proud last night. I was talking to my sister who lives in St. Louis on um, FaceTime, and she told me that having nothing to do with me, her son, who is a junior in college and a real smarty smart computer science-y kind of guy is applying for an FBI internship this coming summer. Wow, Mm -hmm. that's fabulous. Isn't that cool? Yeah, I hope he gets accepted. That would be wonderful. I do too. I think that I think I read something like there's 10,000 applications every year for internships and they only take like 350. So I think his chances are not great. But he was one of those, um, what do they call those scholars? uh, He was national merit scholar. Uh, so yeah. he's really uh, smart. He's in the top 1% of the entire country um, and is really smart with computers Wait, and math.
2: Somehow he's related to you.
0: I know. It's so weird. It I is weird. I boggles agree my you. mind. obviously he got his brains from some other side of the family. <laughs> right. But, but by um, the way,
2: Francie, it is actually I can't believe I'm saying this. Good to have you back. Oh, man. <laughs> did I really say that out loud? You um, did say it out loud. Man, I was just, under the weather. You were. I that out
0: I was under the weather on our last episode and I missed, um, the judge. I missed a great guest. And so I'm really sorry that I missed her. I definitely was not going to miss Kathy canning for sure.
2: Oh,
0: but let's get into this. So I, I would really like, if you guys don't mind, if you'll indulge me, I would really like to pick both of your brains about a case that has captured not just my attention, but really the entire country's attention for a variety of reasons. And I wanted to talk to you all when I first Asked Jim if he thought we could convince you to come on the podcast. It was when this case was still sort of in in a very investigative stage, and it's a little bit more advanced than that now. But I still want to. I, I think it'll really uh, be interesting and educational for our audience to hear from the two of you with your profiling background about kind of what is likely going on behind the scenes and what it all means. Um, so. I wanted to start with this case out of Memphis, Tennessee. I think I feel an especial attachment to it because I was born in Memphis, Tennessee. Really? So it was really? my older brother. And I You're was there a Tennessean. For, I'm a Tennessean by by birth. And all um, this
2: time, I thought you were a Georgian.
0: I know. Good lord. Well, I've been in Georgia since I was five. So Well, you've been
2: obfuscating. You've kept that information from us.
0: I have hidden the information from you, but I was actually born in Shelby County, which is Memphis. And so when the news first broke on Friday morning, I'm a I'm a news junkie. I'm always following the news. And so when the news broke Friday morning about a young uh, woman who went jogging at four o'clock in the morning uh, in Memphis uh, and then vanished. And police put out information that they thought that she had been kidnapped. And at the first, I want to take you guys through the case as it was happening. So you all can comment on kind of what would be going through this, uh, through the minds of the investigators and what you think about any possible motives that occur to you as we go through this terrible abduction and crime. So all we knew first thing Friday morning was that a young woman, I, I think she was in her 30s, a young mother, marathon runner. So she was out probably on a very long run, which is why she was out at 4:30 in the morning running in Memphis. She was also a kindergarten or preschool teacher, so um, she had a husband, and she disappears. And police put out a a sort of a blurry image of an SUV. It's a dark colored SUV. And they say, oh, sorry, you're right. Thank you, Matt. She was 34 years old, Um, Eliza Fletcher. So Eliza Fletcher goes missing. Police put out a, a, a very blurry picture of an SUV and say they have information that a man shoved her into that SUV and took off. And at that point on Friday, that was all that we knew. So Kathy, if I could, I'd like to start with you. And I know you've done a lot of kidnappings, a lot of child kidnapping cases. Can you talk
1: a little bit about motives for kidnappings? I mean, when you first heard about this, what were your thoughts? Yeah. And like you, Francie, I follow the news pretty closely and I was You know, felt an attachment to this case, not because of the Memphis connection, but as a lifelong runner, as a woman, it's really every female runner's nightmare would be when they're lifting up their shoes to go running wherever they are, whatever time of day. That's always a thought that goes through your mind. What if this happens? So my heart just sank when I heard the news report. Um, And it just got me to thinking, obviously, about all of our work in the BAU and these types of cases, whether it be child abductions or adult abductions like this case. And also, it it got me thinking about um, my my instruction at UNCW. One of my courses, I talk about routine activities crimes, right? This is a routine activities theory crime where you have. Well, I've never heard it put that way. That's a really interesting way to put it. Yep. So Cohen and, and. Felson, I believe it is, Cohen and Felson in 1979, they developed that term. And what it means is you have the convergence of a motivated offender, an available victim, and lack of a capable guardian. So when those three elements come together, then these types of crimes happen, right? She's on her routine run. So she runs this eight mile course regularly she probably has done it hundreds maybe thousands of times and nothing has ever happened to her before but this is just a time and space where you have a motivated offender he comes upon her it's an opportunistic thing obviously well in these cases in all of our experience they're typically sexually motivated right um and then he has a vehicle somehow he um he uh, stops her, gets her to stop. We don't know whether he had a weapon, at least that hasn't been reported as, at the news. But somehow he's able to control her, get her into the car. And news reports claim that the SUV remained there for four minutes before taking off. So, uh, Jim, you know, you and I have worked many, many child abuse yes. where the, this type of thing happens. Um, so, of course, it's always very worrisome, um, especially when you have somebody in a vehicle that's motivated and able to transport that victim away very quickly. And now, we well, have- and Kathy,
0: I, I know what? that. Oh. And
1: of course, my first thought was like yours, that this was a sex crime. I mean, I
0: because that's what I did, you know, sex crimes. So I immediately assumed that or thought that was most likely. But we heard fairly quickly that her family was very wealthy, that she was the heiress to some sort of fortune. So on Friday morning, anyway, my mind was going both directions. And Jim, I want to ask you about how, as an investigator, you handle... Uh, an investigation that I I would think would be very different depending on which kind of offender you're dealing with. Is it a kidnapping for ransom or is it a kidnapping for like Kathy was talking about a crime of opportunity?
2: Right. Well, first we have to answer the question of whether or not it was a routine for her to run at this time of the day, because four or four thirty in the morning is a very, very difficult time to find people out. So if you're on the hunt, how would you know that this this person would be available so because that that will make the determination between w- whether this is a stalking case or whether this is a crime of opportunity so we we first have to find out what her routine was and if we do find that since she's been training for the, this marathon, she's always out at this time, then that opens the possibility of somebody who had stalked her, had seen her before, had developed this fantasy and wanted to act on it eventually and took advantage of it on this particular morning. It's also possible that, as Kathy as said, this is a crime of absolute opportunity. Perhaps this offender was out trolling for victims. Perhaps he was coming home from a shift at work perhaps he was on his way to work any of those things could could happen but if he did actually see her before and know she was going to be there and plan this it's a whole different kind of situation so there's a lot of unanswered questions before we get into you know exactly how how this went down or the theories behind it but of course you know you'd have to form hypotheses and those are two good hypotheses. We start with victimology, of course. That tells us a tremendous amount of what kind of case it is, and in this case, you have a wealthy, or soon to be wealthy, uh, young woman who, who, in all likelihood, um, has other kind of security measures around her life and and their you know assets but not when she is running. And as Cathy said, you have a vulnerable victim here with nobody around to protect her. And that is, that's a major red flag here. So, so it could be the reason why, and if that's the case, we would expect within a, a short amount of time after abduction to receive a ransom demand.
0: Well, and of and, course we didn't we didn't get that. And and Kathy, so the next thing we sort of heard about in the police investigation was that they had a suspect. And it turns out that that, that they found a suspect because of some slides or sandals found at the scene where the car where uh, Eliza Fletcher was first forced into the car. And so they had a suspect very quickly, which I I thought was pretty remarkable. And it turned out was because of DNA. They found DNA in those slides and we're able to tie it to him because... When you say slides,
2: could you please tell the audience what you mean by slides?
0: You know, sh- they're shoes. Like um, we would call them house shoes here in the South. They might be called pool shoes. Some people would call them. Uh, athletes use them after they finish, um, you know, showering. They'll put them on like in the locker flip-flops room. flip-flops or something? Well, they like, are flip-flops, but they don't have the little thing between the toe. It's just, just like there's a, just band. a band. Just okay. a band across the top of your foot. Yeah, And we, what's I, interesting,
2: Right, what's interesting interesting about that is that is an indication to me that this wasn't a planned event, that he he did not have this in mind. And he probably lost those shoes in this in the tussle with the victim. So this yeah, now goes, don't seem like
0: violent crime yeah. kind of planning shoes. This I mean, now it goes crazy. pretty
2: seriously into the into the realm of an impulsive crime by someone right. who had no prior relationship or knowledge about the victim.
0: Well, and Kathy, I think that morning, that Friday morning, then we started to hear once they captured the the suspect and we started to hear about his criminal history, what I thought was interesting and gave me hope at that moment, and I'm wondering what you thought about it, was that he had a prior conviction for armed robbery. So 20 years before he was convicted of armed robbery, where he had taken someone, forced them to go to an ATM and give him money. And so I had hope at that moment that 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 was the motive for this crime as well. Tell us what your thoughts as a, you know, as a more expert um, psychology profiler person would think.
1: Yeah. um, And and obviously we're keeping all these options open, open, given the slowly developing, or in this case, it's quickly developing information about um, his past. And I, I had read it as a aggravated kidnapping. I didn't know that the motive in that case was, was a financial motive. Um, but I see where you're going with this, that, you know, perhaps then he may have just taken her to an ATM machine and, and she's alive somewhere. But unfortunately, with the many cases that Jim and I have worked um, my thought was going towards this is a probably a sexual assault case. And and likely, she may have died within the first couple of minutes when that car remained at the scene before it drove off, because, you know, just <laughs> typically in these cases, she's going to be fighting, he's going to try to control her in whatever means that he can. Um,
0: well, and Kathy, we did hear that when they were able to track the car around the city, it's not clear to me whether that was some kind of GPS or whether it was you know surveillance cameras around the city of Memphis. but um, I guess he had her in that car for about an hour and a half. So right. what what does that say to you as a profiler? I mean, you know at that point when you learn that information, his slides are left at the scene. Um, they police did finally admit that there was a struggle. They saw on camera that they knew long before we did, you know what what are you thinking as a profiler at that point about where she might be?
1: Right. So typically when we ha- we see these cases, the sexually motivated child abductions that we've worked, Jim and I worked, uh, typically the abduction happens. Right. And then the offender gains control of the victim somehow and then takes the victim to a safe location where he typically sexually assaults the, the victim.
2: Yeah, where he has more control and privacy.
1: Exactly. So that's what I would be thinking that would be happening during that time. He's gaining control of her. He's trying to look for a place where he has more in his own mind, safety and control where he can do what he needs to do. Um,
2: Right. And so this is a perfect place to talk to our listeners about when an offender tries to move you to another location, fight with your life for your life. This is the point at which you have the most chance of getting away from him. After this, when he puts you in a place or a transportation modality or a place where he has more control and privacy, the risk to your life is increased dramatically. So this is, this is unfortunate but you have to yell and scream and claw and fight and bite and poke out eyes and rip off ears and chop to the to to the throat, anything. And kick, kick them in, in, the, the genitals. Kick
0: in the genitals. Jim, you yeah. know, it's something that you're saying. My, I took a self-defense class when I was at the University of Georgia as like a freshman or a sophomore. And I've never forgotten what that former army ranger told us. And that is, if you've got a gun pointed at you, which is kind of like the most extreme situation, you have a gun pointed at you and someone telling you to get in the car. He said, you know, your human instinct is to do it because you just think to yourself, that's how I preserve my life. And he said, that's how you lose your life. He said, better for you to literally turn and run because a moving target is harder to hit and because if you do get shot, at least you're somewhere where you originally were and you have a chance of being found and saved. And I just think that's so like Kathy said earlier, you know, women's fear. I think women think about this sort of stuff a lot more than men do. Mm-hmm. And like my husband never worries about walking to his car in a parking deck. I always worry walking mm-hmm. to my car on a parking deck. And I just wonder, could I, if someone had a gun pointed at my face telling me to get in a car? Could I turn and run? And I don't know. And I don't know what happened to Eliza Fletcher. Although police told us later that there was a struggle. That's why the offender's slides were left at the scene because there was a violent struggle. So Jim, I think she did put up a fight for her life. Oh
2: yeah, I think she did. I'm not blaming her in any way. Oh gosh, no, what I I'm didn't What I'm saying is work, no. that is the place and time to do it before he gets any level of control over you. Uh, the approach, you know, it, the the scream, the the the. the scratching and and fighting and hitting and doing everything making it as difficult as possible for that person to take you or to secure you those are that's the time to do it because if you don't do it then the chances of you being able to escape later are are unfortunately minimized
0: yeah Kathy what are your thoughts about kind of the investigative phase of things. So the police have uh, a description of the car. They've got it on video. They have a description of the suspect. Um, it takes several hours, but they arrest him. What's going on in the investigation during that time? I think that's yeah. one of the things our listeners are always most
1: interested in is what's going on behind the scenes that we don't see. Well, there, there is a lot going on, obviously. Um, and I think you've just made some several points about media strategy, right? And this is something that the BAU assists in these types of investigations. What kind of information are you putting out to the public? Obviously, as soon as you can, you want to put out a description or a photograph of that of the victim, as well as the vehicle that was seen. And, and I read one report that said they actually had a partial tag that was captured on that CCTV. So the uh, police uh, investigators are, are checking NCIC for uh, that GMC model vehicle that has a partial tag because they can find uh, partial tags sometimes times with the description of the vehicle so they're trying to identify the uh, the perpetrator through those means as well as the, D- the dna analysis is going and what a boon to law enforcement now that dna tests can be turned around so quickly you don't have to. and wait it was long. turned around in hours in this case amazing incredible right. and thankfully he had his his dna was in the codis da- database because of his previous felony can conviction. you tell us again what codis is It's the combined DNA indexing system that the FBI houses um, for, uh, basically it's a data bank that contains DNA um, sequences. Um, So when an individual is convicted of a felony, um, his or her DNA is, is taken and put into the system so that it's it's left there forever.
0: Yeah, uh, interestingly, in that. That, um, that was revised not that long ago. And so everyone arrested for a federal felony has their DNA taken before they're ever even convicted. And different states have different requirements, whether you have to be arrested, whether it's arrested or convicted. But yes, felons, certainly convicted felons across this country have their DNA in the database. And I do wanna say, while they had this guy's DNA profile within hours, that is very unusual. I mean, I'm not sure I've ever heard a case where that got turned around so quickly. So I don't know whether Memphis or maybe the FBI had, uh, you know, a brand new something going on, because that is the fastest I've ever heard that around.
2: Well, remember, Francie, when you were in Pennsylvania, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, they had yeah. a a... Um, I can't remember the name of the machine, but it w- it would turn around a DNA analysis in 45 minutes. So I think, you know, the technology oh, you know, you're certainly right, exists. Jim.
0: You're right. You're right. It exists. But that is a, um, I think that's a, they had a very small sample size. I mean, they like it's only like county wide for them. Um, I don't have any idea what Memphis had, whether it was something like that. But you're right, that existed. But this is the first time I've heard of its use in something like this for a, you know, a, a, a crime An ongoing, that's ongoing right, right, right then. I I was very impressed yeah. by the fact that they could identify. I mean, I'm sure it was a combination of things. You have his DNA profile. You got a, a vehicle. Tied to him, and you have an image at least of, yeah. of him. Yeah. Unfortunately, when
2: when they did recover the vehicle, uh, he had he had cleaned it out,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and and there was no forensic evidence found.
0: Oh, is that was, right? I know that yeah. he had tried to clean it. That was one of the things that incriminated him. They actually have him on video trying to clean the vehicle before he gets arrested. But I didn't know whether that meant he successfully cleaned it or not yeah Um, okay so kathy so so the media strategy you were talking about
1: right yeah so um you know putting out the the victim's uh image as well as you know more video of her to personalize her so that people in the community can identify with this person and she apparently was well known because of her her family's uh, association with this hardware store um, so she was well known in the community and just because of her work as a as a kindergartner um, and so that as well as the um, the cast team the FBI's cast team cellular analysis um team uh, was doing work on the cell phone. So his cell phone was identified. And actually, the, the investigators went in. Once they identified him, interviewed his employer, he confirmed that he had this vehicle as well as a cell phone. So there's a lot of behind the scenes work go, being done with the cell phone company, cell phone tower dumps to identify not only the Um, the subject's telephone so that they knew where his whereabouts were during the abduction as well as afterwards to try to locate where he went to try to identify where the body you know could have been disposed of but also the the victim's cell phone where she was at that time as well. So there's a well, lot Well, that's a good
0: point, of- Kathy. I forgot to say at the very beginning, Eliza Fletcher's cell phone was actually found on the scene where those slides were, s- close by where those slides were, and it was smashed. So it was mm-hmm. clear that, well, I mean, I suppose it could have been dumped, dropped in the struggle, but all of us know that our iPhones are a little more smash-proof now than they used to be, or our cell phones, whatever you have, Samsung, whatever you have. Um, and her phone was smashed. So that suggests to me a, a very purposeful um, attempt by the offender to prevent to tracking evidence. her, yeah. which brings up a point I wanted to ask you both about. When I was talking to our own Bobby Chacon, he was talking about those little Apple AirTags, and I have an AirTag in my car, uh, hidden somewhere I will not reveal where, mm-hmm. in, in my car. And what Bobby was saying was that uh, it's something women, especially women who are out running, biking, you know, any of these. Solo activities that you do, maybe it's a good idea t- to put one of these in your shoe or, you know, tie it and put stick it in your pocket or something. Um, because that would potentially, if you share that with your friend or family, yeah. then they might be able to track you if something like that were to happen. What do you guys think about that, Jim?
2: Yeah, I think it's a good idea. Um, they also have a, um, a feature on iPhones that if you use the Apple, Uh, tracker, that it will tell you that there is an Apple tracker near you that the owner of which will be able to determine your location just to prevent somebody with bad intentions from planting a tracker on you, following you home, and then... Breaking into your house. Something like that. Which they've done in
0: California. They've been placing the rings of criminals, have been placing these air tags on cars sitting in parking lots after they've been valeted. While the patrons are inside eating dinner, and so the patron comes out, and the, these these robbing crews just follow them home with that air tag, and then they do home invasion robberies. So there's a obviously there's a good use and a bad use. Kathy, mm-hmm. you're a runner. I don't run that much. I mostly walk, but I go out on long walks. What do you think about that for those of us who are a bit you know nervous
1: about that sort of thing? Uh, I think that's that's great. Whatever you know method of or technology that we can use to you know assist in trying to locate us, if something bad happens, then I'm all about it. And it's wonderful that these things are so small, right? They're not big yeah. and bulky things. They're, no, they're like so a, the size of a quarter. A that's fantastic. That's a, I think that's a fantastic idea.
2: Well, this is certainly a horrific and very interesting case. And your insights, Kathy, are, are very illuminating. Thank you for being here. But we're going to have to ask you to come back so we can finish our discussion on the abduction and murder of Eliza Fletcher so till next time everyone thank you for tuning in and listening this is Best Case Worst Case signing off Best Case Worst Case is an XG production produced by Francie Hakes Josh Murphy and Jim Clementi at Empire Studios LA, engineered and edited by Matt Gergel, music composed and performed by Simba Tsumba and hosted by Wondery.
0: You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness to Light can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know?
0: Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community.
2: When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you.
0: Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more.
2: That's d, the number two, l.org.